Hi, and welcome to The Perpetual Stew. I'm Matthew Goodman. And I'm Sarah Merle. Uh, and this week, we're going to be tackling the affirmative action cases um, that, I guess, destroyed affirmative action in the country as we know it. Mm. But before we get to that, uh, <laughs> maybe a little bit of fun first. Sarah, what you eating and what's eating you? Uh, well, let's see. Um, on Saturday, I went to uh, like an old famous steakhouse for the first time on Saturday mm. night. Uh, and we got the prime rib, which looked like it was so beautiful. It was just like perfectly pink in the middle. And it was like a, like an inch and a half or two inch slab. And like two people split it. And I promise you we had leftovers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just one of those, like, you know how once in a while you just like to go to something that does it a little bit old fashioned. Like yep. they're famous for this. They're apparently famous for this uh, French onion soup with the cheese on the bottom, which like fine, whatever. On the bottom, not the top. Yeah. Bold, bold, <laughs> bold and daring. Um, okay. But it was just so nice. It was just like, I don't know. There's something really comforting about like, I don't know. It reminded there's there's just something reminded me about it, about like going out to fancy dinner. But what my grandparents would have taken us to a fancy dinner. You know what I mean? Like it was just like so, so nice. So you were like, hey, hey there, tall stuff. (laughs) You want to take a girl out uh, to the nicest place in town to get some prime rib and some uh, French onion soup? And anytime you go to a place where the wait staff is older, you know that they make enough money that they can actually keep that job for a really long time. You know what I mean? There's something oh, yeah. oddly comforting about that. I often find that they're the best. Yeah. Uh, they provide the best experience. Unobtrusive, but expert. Always warm, but not like smarmy. Yeah. True perfect. hospitality professionals, you know? Exactly. And that just sounds amazing. Um there's an old saying, uh, but I believe, I can't remember, I think it was Yogi Berra who said, uh, a hot dog at Yankee Stadium beats prime rib at the Ritz. <laughs> you know and, what? Uh, I've in tested some, that. I was going to say, in some situations, I think that's absolutely true. Yes, but when the last Yankee game I went to, we lost 14-1. <laughs> uh, nothing tasted good that night. <laughs> so give me prime rib at the Ritz. That sounds lovely. I, I imagine the two of you, though, in sort of like soft focus, black and white, like grainy. You're wearing one of the dresses from like the from like the golden age of Hollywood. You know, uh, he's he has his mustache and his like very dapper hat and trench coat. I yeah. I've now this is this is this is we're airing into a. Uh, uh, me sounding like I sh- like I you know gave you a biography of this person, uh, <laughs> not merely that he's just hot and has a mustache. Yeah, no, I'm literally I'm just spitballing here. I know very little <laughs> about him beyond that. <laughs> but I'm imagining like the uh, uh, like the orchestra in the background unobtrusively playing, just like <laughs> you know the romantic mu- uh, music. <laughs> uh, but what is? What is presently eating me is uh, that I have once again goofed my packaging order. Um, and now I just get to spend the rest of my night seeing who can get me uh, 38 millimeter lug jars uh, or lug lids uh, by Friday. So that's my day. The, the joys of being a small business owner. <laughs> let me let me give everybody a little, little helpful tip here. Uh you got to call if you can, if you can talk to you like a real ass person and just say, hey, be real with me. 
the website says 24 hour processing time. Is it really 24 hours? And sometimes they say, you know, we say that because it's a good cushion, but we can usually get out of there in 12. Or they say, no, everybody's really hung over from X, Y, or Z events. So they'll probably not go out to like Wednesday afternoon. And you're like, thank you so much, Brenda. That is such helpful information. Mm. You got to get, you got to make your way to Brenda. You got to have the patience to get all the way to Brenda who will tell you the truth. The Brendas get a lot of shit, but honestly, they're the ones who fucking keep the, like, everything running. <laughs> That's right. That's right. They know they know the the company line, and they know what's real. Yeah, and they know how to actually get <laughs> what's necessary when it's needed. She might roll her eyes at you. <laughs> Thank you, talk Brenda. Shit about, yeah, talk shit about you a little bit uh, behind uh, behind <laughs> your back, but you know what? She'll still come through for you. That's the Brenda tax. You're allowed to talk shit about me behind my back. I've I've made up a fake emergency. I've made up a fake lit emergency, which doesn't really exist except in the in the universe of my incompetence. Exactly. When you're flighty dilettantes like we are, like that's just part of existing in the world. But on the flip side, that's how you get to know that there's a layer of Brenda's between you and excellence at all times. And also a layer of Brenda's between us and the void. And the yeah. co- complete dissolution of society. That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh man! So thank you. Yeah. What all about you, you, Brenda's out there? What What are you eating and what's eating you, Matt? Uh, so uh, yesterday I tried pickleball for the first time, and Amazing. despite the weird cultishness of some people uh, about the sport, it was fine. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> I had a great time. Um, the people who take it seriously, I feel like, are the people who like didn't play real sports when they were growing up and like got into fitness later in life and now take this like fake sport real serious. Um, That's okay. Like go for it. I'm just, my masculinity is not based on whether or not I'm going to fucking own at pickleball. Like I beat your ass in tennis back in the day. I don't feel the need to prove it now, but no, it was, it was a lot of fun. But uh, the biggest shout out I have to give is to the Colombian uh, barbecue <laughs> that we got at the Colombian Independence <laughs> Day Fair uh, next door after three and a half hours of pickleball. We're all mighty hungry. We got some fucking amazing ass ribs and, you know, turkey legs at Ren Fairs. God bless. Yes. Yeah. I've always been somewhat disappointed because they've always been just sort of under seasoned. Like they were big always. and meaty, yeah. but under seasoned. Right. That's it. No, these were seasoned to absolute perfection. And uh, one of the girls I was with got one to take home. (laughs) Just put one in her purse. (laughs) A queen. A queen among mortals. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's absolute boss bitch stuff. Like, amazing. One time Um, I got so drunk at a work function that I slipped a couple slices of cheese in my wallet. Uh, mm -hmm. They fit perfectly. It was a great snack for later. I regret nothing. Exactly. And so, but what's eating me right now is that there is a uh, perpetual stew is getting its moment of like 15 minutes of fame right now. Not the podcast, but the actual concept uh, of the perpetual (laughs) stew. There was like a chef who made, who's been making a perpetual stew for like 43 days or something. And it's yeah. gone viral. Yeah. And now everybody's talking about perpetual stews. I'm like, bitch, we're doing it before it was cool. <laughs> Listen, we're We're still going to get that SEO bump. And I think that's all that matters. Yeah. Yeah, th- th- that's a really good point. So I'm just saying like anybody who is wondering why we chose the name, this is why like 
because uh, we knew one day in 2023, years in the future from when we started the podcast, uh, when, this was going to happen and going to bump our, our search engine results. When our when our uh, economic standards teetered ever closer to feudalism returning, mm-hmm. this is when mm-hmm. this is when we knew it was our moment in the sun. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> so speaking of feudalism returning, <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's pivot to the Supreme Court. Oh God! So I've been sort of avoiding this uh, the affirmative action cases because they make me incandescently rageful. Yeah. Um, I was listening to an opera singer break down, uh, listening to and breaking down Rage Against the Machine for the first time, <laughs> and she was uh, really she was breaking down how he builds tension uh, and how they musically build tension and like use dynamics to uh, express the seething, simmering uh, rage just underneath the surface. And then when it explodes, it's really impactful. And I'm just like, no, there's no seething or simmering. It's just like exploding like a fucking broken ass (laughs) volcano everywhere. Uh, Side Um, note, uh, Tom Morello writes all of his songs in F sharp minor, which I think is really cool. That's uh, that's just neat. (laughs) It's a choice. And yeah. uh, Tom Morello's just, I mean, Tom Morello's unbelievable. Um, if you've, I had to say, just this is a side note. Um, I listened to a self titled Rage Against the Machine album uh, a year ago, I think, for the first time in quite some time. Yeah. And it still sounds just as fresh now as yeah. when it, the first time I listened to it. Like, yeah. there are very few albums that still feel like they could have come out today yep. <clears throat> and brought something new. And that one, Mm, it's aged. Oh, it's aged so well. Both the um, content and the way that the record itself is mixed. It just is a really good sounding record, you know? Yeah, it's an amazing sounding record. And yeah. yeah, and the content is just like, yeah, people should have been fucking angrier then. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> okay. So pivoting to it, we have two cases here. Um, they are, they're cases that were sort of decided together. There are first students for fair admissions, Inc. the, uh, um, Harvard College, and then Student for Fair Admissions, Inc. v. the University of North Carolina, or UNC, from here on out. I'm just going to referring to this uh, from now on. Um, I think I'm just going to call it SFA, the case just Students for Fair Admission. I'm just going to call it SFA, just to make it easier. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to note that here, we are once again kind of dealing with uh, a fictional problem. I, you took the, that was my first question. It was like, oh, students for fair admission, huh? Yeah. Uh-huh. Which I'm sure is probably not in a completely astroturfed <laughs> white grievance organization yeah. set up to do exactly this, to set up exactly the conflict that we will be talking about, okay. certainly. But- before we go down that rabbit hole, I just wanted to note here, just like to, to like foreshadow, we will be talking about how f- this is another one in the long string of cases of made up shit. But first, before we get to that, I'll just lay out a few uh, bit of uh, a bit of the facts and what's going on here. Uh, it was this nonprofit that was founded solely to bring uh, this suit, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, it's backed by Ed Blum, who was also the same rich white guy. Uh, oddly, he's Jewish uh, from a liberal family in the Northeast. It's a little murky uh, how he fell out of that particular tree. 
You know, uh, I, it's always, it always pays to remind people that you can be as liberal as you want on paper and still really fucking hate brown people, you know? Yeah. On the upside, he's never really been liberal on paper. He's just like the one crazy-ass conservative in his family of, mm. uh, <laughs> okay. of liberals. So uh, he's the same person behind uh, all of the other major cases against affirmative action after it wa- uh, became a thing in the 70s. Um, so if you remember Fisher or any of those cases, um, for those of you con law nerds out there, um, yeah, he was the same guy bankrolling those too. So he started with uh, white people, then he tried a white girl, and none of those worked. So he decided to use Asians as the tip of the spear this time. Cool. It was 6-3. It was a uh, Chief Justice uh, Roberts joint, and he held, quote, the Harvard and UNC admissions programs cannot be reconciled with the guarantees of the Equal Protection Clause. Oh, 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 yeah. no. So both programs lack sufficiently focused and measurable objectives, warranting the use of race, unavoidably employ race in a negative manner, involve raci- racial stereotyping, and lack meaningful endpoints. And for any of you who wonder how the fuck you could use the equal protection clause of all things to try to justify this, uh, Justice Sotomayor read her dissent from the bench, which is unusual. Okay. Right. She literally read the whole thing out loud. Um, And she said, quote, the court subverts the constitutional guarantee of equal protection by further entrenching racial inequality in education, the very foundation of our democratic government and pluralistic society. So only one of them can be right. Either uh, um, affirmative action that uses race to help um, historically marginalized groups get into selective colleges, either it subverts equal protection or it is the essence of equal protection. Yeah. Um, so I just want to take a moment here that we're like taking the very thing, the equal protection clause, as we can imagine, for those of you who remember now, this comes from out of the civil war. Um, we're using that part of the constitution to deny (laughs) affirmative action advantages for racial minorities, including African-Americans. So just take a moment and think, which side likely, from a historical standpoint, has the better of this argument? So with that said, Sarah, <laughs> I, I leave you to now poke and prod me before I explode. Uh, I just want to say, I knew nothing about the... I When I said that I bet this is an astroturfed... Uh, activist group that takes on the grievances of a certain, like, uh, I I assumed white people, but it makes sense now that it would, you know, try that formula and that doesn't work. And then, you know, use another uh, marginalized group as a shield, right? Like this Mm -hmm. makes total sense to me. Um, And I think I, I remember hearing these arguments when I was in high school and people were applying for colleges and like people weren't getting it to, you know, like I went to a very, very fancy college prep school. So like it was very much a culture where like where you got in, not just where you went or like whatever, but like also where you got in really mattered. 
So mm-hmm. there was all this like white grievance bullshit about like people not getting into, you know, people who got into top 10 schools, but were mad that they didn't get into 10 out of 10 top 10 schools, yeah. you know? Yes. Um, they got he, in, they got into a top 10, but not the top 10 they wanted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and so there was a lot of this exact bullshit being sort of passed around, which is, you know, like, oh, it's cause I'm white. Like it's because, mm-hmm. you know, like our, one of my friend's dad is Cuban and his last name is Hispanic and everyone's mad cause he appears white, but checked the Hispanic box on his application, which is his right to do. Like, yeah, which is totally fine. <laughs> like also the fact that his, you know, people are mad because despite his dad, despite his dad being an immigrant, he was very successful, which I'm like, you just said, despite his dad, like you just said, like you said in that statement, there's an admission there that this was not the thing that was supposed to happen. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it didn't matter. Like it doesn't, it, it doesn't matter. Right. Like it ultimately, it just like, do you know what I'm saying? I know exactly what you're saying. So my own personal experience with this also, I didn't go to a prep school. I went to public school, but from the part of New York I'm from, I mean, six one way, half a dozen another. <laughs> yeah. um, the the public schools all around here are basically private schools. They have the same yeah. funding level as private schools. Um, so there are some facts that support, the that make Asians an excellent vehicle. So for example, if you're an Asian applicant, you do have to be about, 30% better than everyone else when it comes to yeah. test scores, GPA, stuff like that. And I knew that, right? Yeah. I knew that when I was applying and it's only gotten worse over time. And when I got into my alma mater, which is an Ivy League school, um, there was a white girl in my class who accused me publicly of only getting in because of affirmative action, um, which revealed two things. First of all, deeply poor judgment. like deeply poor judgment of showing your whole ass in public (laughs) and second a really bizarrely deep misunderstanding of how race works in affirmative action um and i being angry and also a teenager then just publicly panster basically i then just ran down all of our metrics against each other out really loudly and said which part of this screams affirmative action to you? The yeah. fact that I have a higher GPA, higher test scores, like, and she was upset, which I was cruel. It was not the right thing to do, but it does go to show that even in a supposedly progressive part of the country, um, this shit runs real deep with white people. Yep. Yeah. And, and then it also- reveals it. Well, <clears throat> it reveals like, what what is really at the heart of a lot of like white grievances and white anxiety which is like what if i am treated like everybody else and they're better than me like <laughs> oh god what if they level the playing field and i'm terrible you know like yeah it's true um and it was funny there was a girl from my school who actually moved to arizona um because coming from this part of new york is extremely competitive but there's actually yeah. a larger advantage geographically by being a strong applicant from uh, different parts of the country where they simply get fewer applicants. And she most likely would not have gotten in um, to my alma mater if she had stayed in the school district, but applying from um, uh, Arizona, she was basically, she just looked so much better coming from that uh, part of the country. And that's fair game. 
rich people do this shit all the time. Like, I just want to be very clear. Like, when you can afford to do that, you can game the system in any number of ways. So, there, there were a lot of nuances about the college application process and the system, the admission system. I feel like the general public has some misconceptions about. Yeah. Um, and... I do want to, I want to base this in facts. And the first fact is, is that Asians are significantly disadvantaged compared to every other racial group in the country. Yeah. Um, it's the similar in some ways to the way that Jews were basically uh, kept out. That's actually the original reason they had quotas and affirmative action was to limit the number of Jews allowed in, in uh, colleges and universities. That's the actual basis uh... for the start of things like legacy advantages, preferences, th- yeah. these sort of systems was literally anti-Semitism. Um, and over the years, there have been a variety of systems um, that have been uh, regimes that have been in, been put in place as it's been litigated through the Supreme Court. Um, because at first they were just straight quotas. Yep. Right. They were just straight quotas. When that was ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, they were allowed to move to softer things. They were basically soft quotas. They didn't say we need only 15% of our class to be Asian or 10% to be Jewish. They just massaged um, the advantages given to certain groups uh, so that it played out that way year after year after year after year. And so the statistical evidence... I want to note the statistical evidence that the current system essentially amounted to a soft quota system is actually quite devastating that Harvard, Yale, all the top schools have had insanely consistent class demographics year after year after year after year when it comes to race. Um, So I just want to get all lay out all the groundwork there. And then also note, I am Asian. I'm Korean. I am. I was uh, disadvantaged by the system at every level. So many of the people in my community. So I'm just laying all of that out there on the table uh, before we move forward. Um, so now, Sarah, I open the floor to you. I know this is this is good because I am like so deeply immersed in this shit um, that I need I need to like get some perspective. So please. So here's my first question: Is does this also extend to like? postgraduate school so medical school or architecture school or all these graduate programs are also now not i mean you tell me so not explicitly but schools are acting as if that is true great um so there was an interview with the uh dean of um howard's medical school yep which uh, Howard is a historically black uh, university and has graduated more black MDs yeah. alone than all other medical schools in the country. And and here's why my, so my first thought about this is uh, anytime black patients uh, historically have very high mortality rates just from the moment they enter the hospital. Right. So um, my dad tells me this, the story that like he still feels really guilty about from back in the day when like, this woman, this older black woman said, my bowels are locked. And he gave her, uh, didn't ask any further questions, right? Was just like, great, done. Mm-hmm. Didn't ask a single other question, prescribed her um, laxatives, right? And she came back the next day and she looked like gray. And he was like, God, what happened? And she's like, my bowels were locked open. Like, 
So he yeah. not only like exacerbated exactly the problem that she was having by not probing that communication for a split second. And yeah. when we statistically study um, just all black patients, but like, especially like black women have a super high uh, maternal mortality rate. Mm-hmm. Um, but all black patients have better outcomes in systems where there are more black doctors and mm-hmm. Like that is, that is multi-pronged, right? That's like a trust thing. That's like, you know, a communication thing that is a, just a, a comfort and representation thing, right? Like there is a lot of anxiety, you know, if you talk to like obese people, when they talk about how much fear they feel going to the doctor, because they know that no one's going to listen, like yeah. it's that same thing. It's like, you're a black person going into this huge staff of white people. Mm-hmm. And like, is anyone actually going to listen to what you're saying? Right. Like, particularly when it comes to pain, yes. which I think is always fascinating. Um, there, there's an entire other episode to do about uh, stereotypes about the differences in bodies between yeah. um, white and black people. But let's just say the idea that black people are, have somehow higher pain tolerances are are uh, are like superhumanly resistant to pain, or and then on the flip side, also make shit up as a drug seeking yep. behavior. Yep. Um, all of that stuff goes way, 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 way back. Um, but like the reason I bring up Howard is that Howard medical school does explicitly provide a bump for African American applicants. Yep. They are historically black university. Like yeah. Howard was founded to educate African Americans. Because they were not allowed in other institutions. Do you know what exactly. I mean? Like like that that fact doesn't exist in a vacuum where like they're <laughs> being let in, you know, at schools all over the nation. Precisely. And like my alma mater, Dartmouth, was originally founded to um educate Native Americans. Yeah. And so Dartmouth still has a, a disproportionately large number of Native American students. Pretty cool. Um, because they give advantages in the application process to native students. Plus you don't have based on what percentage native you are. Like if you're 50% native, you don't have to pay 50% of your tuition. If you're hundred yeah. percent, you pay nothing. Yeah. Like that's the way they are. A system like that, that give explicit advantages is likely unconstitutional under um, SFA. Yeah. So yes, you're right. This, does not explicitly say so, but that pivots well to the vagueness. Yes, always, of this always the fucking vagueness. Yeah. So I want to read here, and and then I want. So I'm going to read what John Roberts said here, and then I want you to tell me what the standard is. Okay. Right. What the standard is. So John Roberts says. Nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. In other words, the student must be treated on his or her experiences as an individual, not on the basis of race. So can you articulate to me, Sarah, when it is acceptable for a school to, when considering the whole applicant to consider their race and when it's impermissible? Uh, I mean, my, my, the Carrie Strug in my brain has just broken both her ankles doing (laughs) mental gymnastics, trying to make this one work. 
which is mm-hmm. we're we're back to we're exactly back to the thing with the right like where it's like okay well so I can talk about my experiences as a white person or I can or or how it like positively affected like I mean the, I don't so let's go there let's say you write about being a white person right and how that affected your life so does giving you does that discussion and their analysis of you is that based on your experience as an individual or is that on the basis of race i mean this is the thing like we we can't you can't separate an individual from their race i mean like this is like uh, this is so fucking stupid like that that you know it's like 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 i said i went to this fancy private prep school i was just fucking talking about this and it was just like um you know the the like i only ever knew like wealthy black people right mm-hmm. like that was who i was surrounded by it was like black people but with a lot of money right and yeah. it like it did not change most of their experiences of racism. It doesn't change that lingering anxiety of just like walking mm-hmm. down the street, hoping that you won't be targeted. Right. Like nope. it, it changes, you know, it changes your microaggressions from like, you know, 300 thread count cotton to like, you know, a thousand thread count Pima, but like they're mm-hmm. still microaggressions and they still make you feel like less of a person, you know? Yeah, exactly. So I, I think the way you put it is perfect. You can't separate these two things that John Roberts is trying to separate out. So there's an old story from Norse mythology. Essentially back in the day, uh, it doesn't really matter, but long story short, Loki, the god of mischief, loses a bet and the bet is his head. <laughs> so the other guy is allowed to cut off his head, but Loki says, but you only get my head. You cannot touch my neck. <laughs> So if you try, if you touch my head, at, if you touch my neck at all, then you are a liar and a cheat and you should be killed as well. <laughs> and so the guy can't figure out how to take the head without touching the neck. So instead he sews Loki's lips shut. Perfect. Honestly. Yeah. yeah. And then Loki ripped them out and then that scarred his mouth so that Got forever uh, his smile, which had been charming before, always looked sort of evil. Great. So love this. It's this sort of thing. Sometimes things are the boundaries between them. When are you talking about your individual experience? When are you talking about your race? How do you separate these two things? Yeah. And when you're evaluating it as an admissions official, how do you know which side of this line you're going to fall on? So we talked about strategic ambiguity, strategic vagueness on the Supreme Court before. So what do you think the likely outcome for admissions officials is going to be. I mean, you know, as if we've learned anything from the abortion debate, it's going to be to err on the side of caution vis-a-vis or not vis-a-vis, but better known as not getting sued. We would not like to get sued. So, you know, that means that like your whole admissions process is a bullshit song and dance on the order of like applying for a job anyway. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. We're going to end up with tech companies hiring, uh, you know, an all white culture and then saying, like, you don't fit the, you know, you don't fit the culture. Right. And it's like, yep. what culture is that, Steve? Yes. <laughs> it's like. The thing that gets me here. Right. The thing that gets me here is that Roberts does not once again, does not have the courage of his convictions. Of course not. Right. 
He's claiming he's not overruling Fisher or Grutter or any of the other previous cases um, that allowed this. He's claiming he's not doing it. But this is very the much, I'm not touching you. <laughs> <laughs> of uh, of jurisprudence, essentially. Yeah. Um, and even Justice Th- Thomas calls him out. He's like, no, no, we are overruling. Actually, all of the other justices in the majority call him out. They're like, no, no, we're overruling them. He's the only one who says that they're not. So, like, let's just say that, like, when I believe, this is my conjecture, that in the future when law students study uh, SFA, they're going to read the majority opinion by Roberts, and then, but it's not going to be the controlling opinion. I think that ultimately people are going to be like, no, they're, they're overruled. Like you can claim you're not doing it, but that's a distinction without a difference. Like you are in all practicality uh, doing it. So I also want to get to a little thing about admissions officials as jobs. So a lot of people are uh, at their, their jobs. So a lot of people think of admissions officials as if they have a lot of power, but they are highly constrained. Exactly. Um, by their by their 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 job descriptions, and what is one thing they can't do? <laughs> what do you what mean? can they not do? Like, what would you get in trouble if you consistently made decisions and uh, 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 and the school wound up having this happen to them? You mentioned it already. I'm so sorry. I'm I might I might be too stoned for this one. No, no, it's okay. So your admissions official. You have a two applicants before you, and if you choose one as a racial preference, you're opening yourself up to a lawsuit. Correct. If you choose the other, you're not opening yourself up to a lawsuit. Correct. You want to choose the first. Would you even, do you think you'd even be allowed to do so? Of course not. No. So they will be bound by their job descriptions and titles and their responsibility to the school. To safeguard the school's reputation, both academic and professional, and also to act in the organization's best interest. Yep. Both of these students are qualified. Only one of them carries liability. I was going to say, and and at the end of the day, schools are, despite whatever they say, for profit. You know what I mean? They're yep. they're money making organizations like everything else, and you know they they also don't want to have to go to their donors and say, we need you to donate because we got our asses suit off and we really need some help. We're in the hole. Yeah. Oh, I, I think that's great. The, 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 the board of trustees, right. They're all going to be like, no. Yeah. Like we are setting guidelines for this. And if you're going to make one of these decisions, you're going to have to talk to counsel. Yeah. You're going to talk to our, to our general counsel and the general counselor is going to do the lawyerly thing and say like, don't open us up to liability. Yeah. Every time. And I've, I'd say it, interfacing with a lot of law school staff, administration, uh, undergraduate uh, administration, they're constantly worried about liability. Yeah. Always, always, always. So you ever wonder why they're so cautious, why they're so worried, why they're so slow? It's because of that. And also they're scared of their alums. Like I was talking to students at UVA's law school and there was a noose found on a statue. God, Jesus. The administration did not issue 
uh, a statement condemning it because their uh, uh, alum-like advisory committee didn't think it was a big deal. I'm shook, Matthew Goodman. Yeah. So I I knew that I I talked to several administrators there. They all wanted to do it, but their hands were tied. Also, it's UVA. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like fucking Hillsdale or something. You know what I mean? Like, it's UVA. Yeah, it's UVA. And this is the environment, the sort of like um, small C conservatism, the caution that we're going to see. So if people wonder why Roberts wrote something so fucking vague, this is why. Because he doesn't actually, he doesn't want to be the one who stuck the knife in. He doesn't need to. He just has to hand the knife to them and they have to do it. Like schools are talking big right now. Once they start losing lawsuits in some of these places, they're going to be forced to change. Um, And like if Howard of all places is talking to council and reevaluating their admissions, like every place has to be doing it and they're going to make the appropriate noises. Um, But I promise you the outcome of this is not going to be some like, oh, wow, suddenly they're not going to be. Uh, so many legacy students on campus. That's not, no. that is not what's ha- going to happen here. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, or, or, you know, on the flip side, like it will force a lot of like, you know, like everybody has met like uh, a kid or <clears throat> the kid of immigrant parents who like the immigrant parents made sure they got the most bland ass American first and middle name. And you end up with like self erasure, basically, right? To like try to pass through some of these filters, right? Like everybody has known something, you know, everybody has a family story. Like we anglicized our name at Ellis Island or blah, blah, blah. Like my family angle that we were Stefanoffs and it's now then they were Stefans. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we're going to push people back to that, like, you know, night turn of the century, turn of the 20th bullshit, you know? There's already been in the Asian community. That's always been an open question about whether or not you should self-identify, but schools are very good at figuring it out. They're all sorts of markers. I'm just like, you're going to have to fucking lean into it. But it was a question for me because my name is Matthew Goodman. Nothing about me or my life reads as Asian. Like I could go through the whole thing until my interview and no one would know. Yep. Um, but I chose not only to identify to, but to write my essays about being adopted. Yeah. Right. Because guess what? If you're talking about the totality of who I am and what the most central part of my identity yep. is, it is being born in Korea and then being raised by white parents in suburban New York. Like yeah. there is no way to evaluate my life to to separate my head from my neck right without talking about race that's what i'm saying that's exactly what i'm saying right like uh, you know that and that is a problem unique to non-white students do you know what i'm saying like i i could i could write and did write a hundred essays about whatever adversity that i faced and didn't mention race because it's not part of my narrative because i was a white kid in a mostly white school and like you know, there was, my race did not pose any, any uh, impedance, any impedance yeah. to what I was trying to do. And 
but when I think about, you know, like to me, my, one of my closest friends during my high school years was uh, Raquel Delgado, who like amazed me because she would get in, you know, be arguing with her mom in half English and half Spanish. Right. And it's like, there, there, again, there's no separating Raquel's experience as like, uh, you know, the, the kid of Mexican American parents or the kid of Mexican parents in America and, and being immediately othered in Evansville, Indiana. Like that's, you know, like, and <laughs> I was going to say the, yeah, like arguing with your parents in half English, half Spanish in Evansville, Indiana, in Evansville. Yeah. In yeah. Evansville. And, and like, I, I don't know. It's so, it feels like such a robbery of people's identity. And I mean, like truly like ripping something out of someone's hands, which is like, I, I never even considered the fact that it would leave you open to, uh, into being, to being sued. So it's like, no, you can't, you cannot talk about this. And it makes it hard to evaluate their applications. Yeah. Because if you give them an advantage, if you rate it high, are you rating it high based on the experience or based on race? How do you separate those two when the experience is just intrinsically about, like, this is what drives me crazy about it. It's intrinsically about race. So I worked, for those of you who don't know, like, I worked in um, undergrad and and, uh, graduate school. I worked as a a consultant, an admissions consultant for many, many years before I went to law school. And one of my favorite students was a Lebanese student applying to Harvard, Yale, all the top schools. And the essay that that we crafted um, was about her hair Mm. at first. It was about how when she was younger, she used to straighten her hair. And then um, she was making um, this particular uh, Lebanese, traditional Lebanese dish dish at the holidays. And it sprays the um, one part of it is that like saffron sort of like blows up in the air and makes the sort of like haze and mist. and it gets all over everyone. And she saw her grandmother just like, and how her grandmother's hair just had this sprinkling, like her frizzy, frizzy hair had this sprinkling of saffron all over it and how beautiful it oh. looked. And her hair, because it was flat, didn't get any of that. It was just laying there. Oh. And she realized at that moment that this was part of accepting who she was, loving them, loving where she came from and sharing that with her family was learning to love her frizzy hair. Oh, and it like chokes me up because it's such a beautiful. Me too. Yeah. Like it's such a beautiful story and like a deeply American story to me. You know, this is, um, and then she was, then she wrote, then it ended with her, you know, inviting her friends over and, um, some of them also had frizzy curly hair. Some of them had flat hair, but she got to see them all do it together. And they were all different races. And it's just like, she, it was a way for her to finally like be vulnerable and share her full self yeah. with them. And if you think about what that brings to a college, what yeah. that brings to any community, right? Like, how unbelievably valuable it is. And I'm like, this is a fucking essay that gets you into an Ivy league school. And it did Um, because (laughs) I'm good at my job. And she's like, this doesn't (laughs) seem like it's important enough. I'm just like, one of the problems a lot of people have is figuring out why they're interesting. Yep. Like everybody works hard. Everyone's (laughs) smart. I'm sorry. Everybody knows that. But like, 
Here's another one. And I, I'm telling people these because I want everyone to think, how do you separate your race from these? I had one Chinese student, big soccer player, a captain of his, of his, of his high school soccer team, Chinese, and he had family back in China. They're separated by oceans and time difference, but they love soccer. So kind of halfway in between is England and the English Premier League. So he would wake up early on um, the weekends and his grandfather would stay up late so that they could watch their favorite English Premier League team together and like cheer for them. Like they'd be on the phone together um, cheering for it. And, And he said like, and what, and to me, again, what an amazing, like, how do you separate race from that? And also, like, what he's like, can I really just write about that? I'm like, dude, this is awesome. Like, yeah. like if soccer is a huge part of your life, like, let's fucking write about soccer, but let's write it in like the best way possible. Yeah. Um. And my my question would be to Chief Justice Roberts is like, okay, how would you separate out <laughs> race from this? Well, I mean, you know, again, from <clears throat> from Justice Roberts' perspective, like whiteness is the standard, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, if a white kid wouldn't have anything to say about race during their essay, why should you have anything to say about race during your essay? You know, oh, he'd be like, oh, we'll cut out all the parts about China, we'll yeah, all the parts about keeping up your Mandarin, um, <laughs> about eating the same foods. They're dumplings, so like race. Um, we so you like soccer. And you watch was, it with your grandfather. I was gonna say, like, like then you then you become like ninety nine percent of dudes on Tinder, which is just like, I like sports. I have a job. I have all my teeth, and look, I have a car. And it's like, yeah. great. Throw them on the pile with all the other ones, right? <laughs> like this is ultimately like, you know, there is the old joke about um, anytime you're a white person and you have a mixed race friend group that there's always going to be a university photographer like close behind. Uh, it's like not entirely untrue. Um, but, but at the same time, you know, I mean, this is such a signal to, to how they actually feel about multiculturalism, right? It's like, uh, these, this kind of person loves to say like, oh, you know, like I, you know, of course I appreciate where everybody's from. And it's like, but you don't like you want, it's, you know, years back, um, when right after 9-11 happened and everybody lost their fucking minds about people in, you know, abayas and turbans and et cetera. Uh, <clears throat> you know, the conversation was about like, well, why don't they just Americanize? You know, why don't they mm-hmm. just, you know, speak English if you know English? You know what I mean? It's, it is a really particular, uh, it strikes me as particularly cruel, that flavor of erasure. Do you know? It also makes me angry because the J.D. Vances of the world yeah. don't actually suffer under this regime at all. So yeah. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, J.D. Vance uh, went, uh, went to Yale. He's white. He's from Appalachia, right? He got famous before he became a shithead. Mm. Uh, he wrote the Hillbilly Elegy, which was like very big among liberal uh, literati about his experience growing up in like rural Appalachia. He, the thing that drives me nuts about this is that J.D. Vance could write his 
Yale admissions essay about growing up in rural Appalachia and being discriminated against by richer people, richer white people. But because it's white people and white people, you could easily argue it doesn't have anything to do with race. It has to do with socioeconomics and class. Yep. Right. So he could write about that and get it an advantage for that. Yep. But the same person, if they were, say, black growing up in rural Appalachia and having to add the the dimension of being in rural Appalachia and black, suddenly race is everywhere. Yep. Can that be considered? I don't know how to consider that experience without considering race. Um, so it just adds yet another barrier another well it adds both a barrier for 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 uh racial minorities but it also like clears a path right explicitly so the jd vances of the world can continue moving forward onward and upward but black jd vance he he can't yeah well he can but he's gonna have to join this you know chorus of incredibly bland narratives about adversity do you know what i mean like there we, we can still have these narratives it's just like you know they lose dimension all these stories lose dimension they lose dimensionality well it's also he can black jd vance can but i guarantee you jd vance was worse on paper than many people from my community where i grew up who did not get into Yale. yeah just Flat out, I will tell you he most that statistically he likely had lower test scores, a lower GPA, and was less prepared for college. Yep. I'm I'm not saying that JD Vance should should not have gotten in. Actually, I think that JD Vance is exactly the kind of person, at least at that point in his life, that places like yeah. Yale should be looking for. Right? He was obviously an intelligent, driven, talented guy. What he chose to do with that is between him and God. But like <laughs> but like what drives me crazy about this is that like there are all these advantages that are given in the it, it, within the system um and we have chosen one explicitly one that yep. deals with race and then used the equal protection clause <laughs> born out of slavery yep right to say no but we can't help people based on race. It just seems, I don't know, when people wonder why I'm so angry, it's because it's Chief Justice Roberts couldn't just reverse it. He had to claim the reason he reversed it was in the name of racial equality. I just, I'm, I'm done. I'm cashed. Yeah. I'm totally cashed. It's, you know, I mean, we're, we are, back to our favorite old conversation about equity versus equality. And the great thing about uh, affirmative action was it was actually like a really effective, like, you know, sort of move towards actual equity, right? Like people are underrepresented, put them there, right? Like make sure they get there. And then what we found out what was borne out by data is that everybody had better outcomes. The more black blank were in their field, right? Like you can do this across attorneys, Doctors, which are like doctors, that's a life and fucking death thing. So that's great. But like, it's not, you know, we think like white people get mad because they think of like only black people benefiting from this, you know, like newsflash, Jethro, you are going to get better care at the hospital with a black doctor, you know, Mm -hmm. 
And no matter how many horrible names you call your black doctor, they're still going to give you superior care than the JD Vance, than the Dr. Vance down the hall, yeah. you know? And I'm going to try to articulate this in a way that like neoliberals and, and conservatives can understand. I'm going to put it in the, in the, in the terms of the market. Cause this is generally how I make, how I make this argument. So I'm like, cause I'm like only like the people who agree with me, they care about racial equality, equity, and justice. Yeah. Some people don't, but I'm just like, look, as Sarah said, we're going to get better outcomes. Here's the mechanism. Yeah. The mechanism is the market. We love the market. Don't we look at all of us? Good capitalists. Yes. Yeah, us us and- neoliberals. Yeah. And the reason is a market has to be made up of a diverse group of actors. Here we go. Who have counterbalancing biases. Yeah. So if you have a bunch of people who are all the same, they're putting them together tends to aggregate biases in the same direction. There you go. And the reason why study after study after study after study shows that more diverse groups make better decisions and have better outcomes in general is because market mechanisms work. Biases counterbalance each other. They offset each other yep. instead of instead of reinforcing each other. There you go. There's your non-social justice, non-DEI, non-critical race theory explanation. It's the fucking market. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, as a as a person who does marketing every day to you know keep the lights on in my house, like. People generally don't like to be sold things on a basis of like race or gender. You know what I mean? Like more than anything, uh, consumers really want to know like what's good about your thing. Like what will I like about your thing? Um, Can I just tell a really funny story about representation and product development? Mm -hmm. So Volkswagen uh, came out with a, which, you know, history unto itself, uh, decided to come out with uh, an electric version of the bus, right? And they named it E-Bussy. Now, those of us who are online and connected to gay culture will also recognize B-U-S-S-Y as the slang term for boy pussy or mm-hmm. uh, the butthole. So <laughs> they managed to get a vehicle, which means little, which means little metal things were 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 manufactured to put on the back, right? Mm-hmm. E-bussy, an electronic boy pussy for you and all your friends to climb inside and buzz around town. Mm-hmm. But these are the kinds of things that can be prevented, right? Like yes. another, can I, t- I'm going to, I'm going to keep this, keep this up because I have seen some staggering mistakes made in marketing. So mm-hmm. when I worked at a free alternative weekly, Nouveau Newsweekly, um, it was right during the time it was, it was all over the span that a local brewery who I will not name, um, was coming up and they wanted us to brew. We always had them brew us a beer on like our anniversary, like special anniversaries, 20th, 25th. Um, and our free paper, the first thing that they, uh, asked us is if we wanted it to be a malt liquor. We said, oh, gosh, nope, we can't, not going to do that one. And they thought that was so funny and such a good idea that the free paper based in the, and I'm using their terms, ghetto, uh, would have a malt liquor. Uh, And we were like, nope, Nope. see, we don't find that funny. We're a free paper. So our whole thing is kind of like 
uh, equal access uh, to information. So like, we don't like, we don't particularly find this joke funny. And like, that was their first idea that was top of the list mm-hmm. is, and, and like at minimum, at minimum, even if they weren't intending to be racist, right? Like at minimum, you should be aware that malt liquor has a racial connotation to it. I was going to say, <laughs> you know, yep. like, and one black person in the room with a little bit of power to talk back to the boss could have been mm-hmm. like, Hey, hi, probably, probably just go ahead and scratch the malt liquor, especially if we're trying to be a beer brewery, but mostly because there are other implications as well. You know? Yes. The only exception would be if that black person were pa- Clarence Thomas. <laughs> he would be like, great. Yeah. Yeah. Roll it so, out. So that gets us to the interesting. I found this very interesting internal dynamics of the court now. Mm. So Justice Thomas has long hated, for personal reasons, affirmative action. Mm -hmm. And this has been a a goal of him. Getting rid of affirmative action has been like a lifelong ambition. And I don't say that lightly. Like, it's very clear uh, from his obsession with affirmative action, despite being a beneficiary of it, He is one of those people who wants to claim that he was not a beneficiary of it, uh, regardless of that fact. And he takes great umbrage at anybody suggesting otherwise. So he wrote a concurrence that's longer than the majority opinion, (laughs) which is unusual. And he clearly wanted to write the majority. So I want to say Chief Justice Roberts not only managed to write a smoking heap of shit, he managed to also take away like the spotlight and the thing and the white whale from Clarence Thomas. Um, I, I wonder how this is going to play out behind closed doors. Like, uh, I just wonder. I also just knowing now what I know about Clarence Thomas and having listened to that incredible, if you have a chance behind the bastards did a deep, deep, deep dive about Clarence Thomas, which like really, really unpacks a lot of the motivations of the man we know today, you know? Um, Slow Burn also did a season recently on Clarence Thomas, and it is also excellent. They are good companion pieces. You are. It's it's worth it. Listen, I think that if you listen to a well-researched podcast, it's the same as reading a book. So go read the podcast or go listen to the podcast. But Clarence Thomas's essentially whole life and career as we know it today is all about how he's not one of, quote unquote, them. He's one of the good ones. He didn't. Other people, other black people who are not as good as him, they got favors. He earned everything that he has. And that is like, you just repeat that over and over and over again. It wasn't me. It's not me that got special treatment. We need to take away this special treatment so all these people who aren't as special as I am don't get special treatment. And on and on and on forever and ever. And and it's hard to understate how angry he is about this. Like, there is a rage here. And... For a long time, he was the only black person on the court. Yeah. And so he had a sort of moral authority. And there were times, I give him credit, there was a cross-burning case where he actually used that moral authority for good. Great. That one time. That one time. But he very clearly not only wanted to write the majority opinion, he also wanted to write it as the only black member of the court. So he would have some, in his own mind, he would be able to be the last, have the last word 
mm-hmm. on the black experience in higher education. But of course, he is no longer the only black justice on the court. Now there's Justice Jackson and Justice Jack. So Justice Thomas wrote of Justice Jackson, quote, as she sees things, we are all inexorably trapped in a fundamentally racist society with the original sin of slavery and historical subjugation of black Americans still determining our lives today. Uh, I have no, I have no problem with that being true. That is the world that I know. Like, we don't actually get rid of the vestiges of fucking chattel <laughs> slavery, Clarence Thomas. Like, we have photographs of the time. Photographs. So, so he spends seven-ish pages, depends on how it's formatted, but between seven and nine pages raging against Justice Jackson's um, dissent. Justice Jackson gives him one line. Um... That Justice Thomas's prolonged attack responds to a dissent I did not write in order to assail an admissions program that is not the one UNC has crafted. Yeah. And then later she says, Justice Thomas's opinion also demonstrates an obsession with race consciousness that far outstrips my or UNC's holistic understanding that race can be a factor that affects applicants' unique life experiences. That she would not engage with or uh, every one of his points quote justice thomas ignites too many more straw men to list or fully extinguish here <laughs> and that's it he rages on for several more pages she moves on with her analysis which i do want to note if you do a close reading of both of them he is raging against i think black women generally not agreeing yep. with him yep um or with any black people not agreeing with him i mean Listen, if if one thing is if the stars aligned in a different way and Clarence Thomas, the actual person, was like a man in his 30s or 40s, he would 100% have the most hotep ass podcast that spent like 50% of its airtime shitting on black women. 100%. That's how I would do it. Uh, yeah. I mean... He would- I do not a- want to think about what the Andrew, what what the uh, Clarence Thomas almost, almost called them Andrew Tate. Uh, but I mean, what the Tateification of Clarence Thomas would be like, right? Like, gross. It was a good Freudian slip. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just, it's going to be. I think there's one thing to take away from it for me is that I think the most important dissent, uh, the most important opinions here are probably going to be Justice Thomas's. Probably Justice Jackson's and probably uh, Justice Sotomayor's. Mm. I think that um, Chief Justice Roberts' majority opinion is going to matter far, far less, mostly because he spends a lot of time trying to hide the ball, being vague, making up bullshit. And like, even his fellow conservatives are like, what the fuck are you talking about, dude? If you just, just say it. Just fucking say it, right? Like, have the guts, have the courage to say what you're trying to accomplish here. That's like, that's all I want from anybody. Back in the back in the Obama days, I wanted people who were mad that Obama existed as president to just say, like, I don't think black people should have that much power in America. Like, just say what you're thinking, and that way we can judge you actually appropriately relative to the grossness of your thoughts. It's a great example of how race blindness as a concept actually leads to white supremacy. Yes, always. So this is one of those situations where literally the court is saying, we're just being race blind. 
right? We're just being race blind. But Sotomayor, I think, says it really well. Quote, in a society where opportunity is dispensed along racial lines, equality cannot be obtained through race blindness. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to use the example of um, the legacy system at schools uh, as an example of how race blind policies create when taken in in the context of actual society, create racially uh, biased outcomes. So how do you become a legacy at a school? One of your parents and your grandparent, or at least a parent, has to have gone there, right? Uh, Grandparents also count. Yeah, grandparents, yeah, whatever. Oh, so it can be grandparent, not your parent, and you still count Mm -hmm. as a legacy. Good to know. Yes. So, like, for example, one of my grandfathers went to Harvard. I would have counted as a Harvard uh, legacy if I'd wanted to go to that, you know, shitty-ass school. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Harvard is perfectly fine. Um, So... If you don't want to be taught it by professor, just be taught by grad students. Sorry. Um, so... This is my favorite way that you've ever thrown shade, Matthew Goodman. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody ever wonders why I chose not to go to Harvard, that's literally why. I just didn't want to be taught by grad students. If I ever told you one of my favorite, this is like one of my favorite um, 30 Rock jokes where Twofer says like, I'm about to say something a Harvard man has never said. And Liz just goes, I'm cool. <laughs> Sorry. <come laughs> <on>. <laughs> No, that's a pretty good one. <laughs> so, as you can imagine, if it's based on being a, uh, on your parents or your grandparents having gone to the school, and schools were racially segregated yeah. into yeah, the mid-20th century, yeah. who is going to be mostly legacies? Yeah, I mean, this, one, this one's not hard to figure out, of course. Yeah, uh, th- boy. this is simply not difficult. Uh, this, this is just not a difficult thing. And I use an even more extreme example. Let's say in the state of Missouri, the only way to get into law school was if one of your parents or grandparents had gone to law school. Okay. Well, black people were not allowed to go to law school until the mid 20th century. Yep. So guess what? You, you yeah. wind up with zero black lawyers under that system. There you go. There you go. Not a few. You end up with zero. So when people wonder why people like me are enraged that legacy admissions were still explicitly maintained, yeah, I want to note that Chief Justice Roberts also, so there were a ton of amicus briefs in this, and one of them came from the armed forces, claiming that they use affirmative action, and they need to continue doing so to maintain a diverse armed forces that reflect society and to maintain readiness and morale. Chief Justice Roberts explicitly carves out an exception for the armed forces. They can continue using race-based affirmative action. But no one else. Well, listen, as long as you're willing to just, you know, jump feet first into the meat grinder for the, for the U S we're, we're happy to have as many faces of color as possible. (laughs) I want to note the dual layers of insanity here. First, there's no intellectually consistent way to exempt them. And second, as you rightly pointed out, it just means you want to throw more people of color out to die. Yeah. Duh. Like, what? Do you I see? Mean, your, we can see you. 
We, I was we gonna can say, see you. In in many ways, it's just like it's just like Justice Roberts going and cranking up the the diverter <laughs> shaft, right? So it's just like, all right, well, okay, now we've got all the white people flowing into this side, and all the black people flowing into the meat grinder. I think we nailed yeah. it, folks. Yeah. I- this is why I avoided doing this because it sounds sort of Disney cartoon villainy of how bad this is <laughs> on so many levels, right? Uh, it's like, it reminds me of the person who says, I don't see race, but. Always. <laughs> right? Or like, it reminds me actually a little bit of a story my mom told about when she, when JFK was running for president. When one of her friends said, you know, the religious thing aside, I just could never vote for a Catholic. (laughs) I mean, it reminds me of when I used to work in corporate America and my black coworkers would be pulled up for quote unquote attitude problems when it's like, well, there wasn't any like that is 100 percent you reading your bias into this scenario. And like this person simply pointing out that your presumptions about this project are wrong. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But, you know you get enough write-ups about your bad attitude and HR doesn't give a shit. They don't know anything about this, right? Like, they're like, yeah, get out. You're done. Like, this just strikes me as yet another way that threatened, easily threatened white America just, you know, uses, like you said before, I mean, listen, I'm, I guess, I guess I, I guess I have to hold down like team capitalist over here, like explain, you know, but it's like, this is always my first thought, which is like, when I want to hire somebody, like, for example, someone to work the farmer's market, uh, you know, like, I want somebody who, like, even in my little company, a multitude of voices and experiences matters, even in our little tiny steps forward that we make, right? Like, mm-hmm. if we choose to make this product, like something that I think about a lot, because our tagline is local honey infused with global flavors is like, um, not using uh like racist names for things like they're they are intentionally like very neutral names because i didn't want to be like you know how like it's like pretty in pink had a fucking character named long duck dong right like it's just like i'm just trying not to make long duck dong sauce you know what i mean (laughs) yeah Um, uh, from the educational standpoint so i was at uh northwestern for an event uh last fall and i was very impressed by one student leader she was a mixed race, but identified as African-American, queer, in her early 30s, and a veteran. Mm. And she was perceived by everyone to be one of the absolute superstars mm-hmm. and leaders of the class. Mm-hmm. And it is difficult to quantify precisely how important it was for her to be in that school. Yeah. Right? And... That school, by the way, uh, Northwestern is an incredibly beautiful law school. A lot of fundraising by the Pritzkers. Incidentally, the same family who backed Obama early in his his presidential career. But Northwestern is historically an extremely white law school. Yep. And a pretty corporate law school. And here we have this queer black woman who's a veteran, who's seen shit and made real life decisions, right? calling the school out for its bullshit yep and being taken seriously not just by her classmates 
but also by the by the administration and her professors because she's not a child. Yep. And also, if you're going to go after a veteran who's part of your class, like you're going to run into PR issues. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I was talking to her and she, and we we were spitballing strategies of like how she could, you know, uh, on like, on being a non-traditional student of trying to leverage, not being a child into like working and getting the children to be useful and productive. Yes. Um, And it was one of those moments where like, I was trying to express to her in as clear terms as possible how much power she had in the situation and her finally dawning on her how much power she had institutionally if she played it right. And what worries me about this is that she and I are both people who like have been hurt by many, many systems. But if we want a better society with as much diversity of opinion, with all of our biases counterbalancing as much as possible, with diverse decision makers who won't just be a whole bunch of like white dudes all saying like, long duck dong sauce is amazing. Yeah. Like e-pussy, let's do it. Um, Right? But like we need more people like her in those rooms to like shut that shit down yesterday. Crucially, though, uh, they have to be listening, right? Like, this is, they have to be listening and willing to take action. And what's really frustrating uh, right now is I worry that this will have the kind of um, Me Too effect where it was just like, Mm. well, I guess we can't hire as many women because God knows everybody, apparently everything's sexual harassment now. So, you know, like, everything's racist now. Like, so the Barbie movie actually. I Barbenheimer is excellent. Go see it. Um, I loved Oppenheimer from a formal point of view. I actually think Barbie is going to be more important culturally. Yes. Um, but I have to say, um, basically one of the big things about the Barbie movie that I thought was really fascinating was that they showed how decision-making groups, groups in power, that are sort of like uh, hegemonic. <laughs> um, even if they are like, even the Barbies did not have a perfect wonderland. It wasn't <laughs> an actual utopia, right? That at the end, here's a spoiler alert. Guess what? Um, the evil does not win, but Barbie also chooses not to stay in dream world. Mm. It ends with her going to the gynecologist in the <laughs> real world, which is excellent by the way. Um, but like, there are a lot of men who have claimed that the movie is alienating. Right. Yeah. That it is offensive. Yeah. That it's portrayal of men is stereotypical. Oh no. Oh God. <laughs> the fucking horror. And it's the same way that there were white dudes, straight white dudes in my law school who are just like, we're just always made out to be the bad guys in the law. And it's like, well, Stop doing bad shit. <laughs> yeah, historically, if you just like kind of quit oppressing people and then complaining about how you're not allowed to oppress people, like not hashtag not all white men. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like there's a reason why my classmates weren't going after Korean adoptees for like <laughs> slavery is because, bitch, we weren't there. We weren't involved. That's not on me. That's on you. And like, <laughs> and also, 
none of us are defending it. Not yeah. none of us are just like, well, my family couldn't even afford a slave. It's like <laughs> as if that's a defense. Like, Lord knows how many times I've heard that. Oh God! Uh, in my classes, I've taught. I've heard it. If I had a nickel for every time someone said no. that to me or a version of it, I would have several dollars. No, absolutely yeah. not. No. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to say, long story short, the Supreme Court sucks. This is a pile of horseshit that's going to make everything worse. Um, but see Barbie and Oppenheimer. And if you can only see one, see Barbie. Um, and also... I think that it needs to be universally acknowledged that Simu Vieux is a better dancer than Ryan Gosling. Whoa. All right. I'll take it. Like I was sitting there with my friends and we all just went, Gosling's kind of getting upstaged in the dance fight. (laughs) And yes, there's an extended dance fight scene. There are multiple musical numbers. There are, there's an excellent extended takedown of matchbox 20 and i was fucking here for it <laughs> also um i just want you to know that matchbox 20 uh dedicated their their set to ryan gosling last night their last show <laughs> amazing i hope they feel bad for writing those lyrics um so uh i also really love that men are mad uh conservative men are mad at ken and the depictions of men as being two-dimensional um actually i haven't seen the movie but I did see the little cut where Ken says his full-time job is beach. And that's exactly how he says it. My full-time job is beach. Mm -hmm. And I, I think what is so funny about men getting mad at that is like that. Some of you literally think that about us. Like my full-time job is shop. My (laughs) full-time job, my full-time job is pretty. Yeah. (laughs) Like my full-time job is make your dick hard. And it's like usually all three of those. All yeah. three have to be your full time job. Yeah, and it's like beach isn't even like a, a demeaning thing to say is your full time job. Just to be on the beach, great, fine. That's technically what a, a lifeguard's job is. But like, yeah, it's not great, is it? When someone like condenses your entire purpose down to not even a verb. Yeah, yeah, just <laughs> being at a place. Being out of place and then like doting on on the yeah. superior one. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it is so as you can't tell if you if you can't tell, I fucking loved Barbie. It is in <laughs> like my t- like in my upper echelon of like most best, most feminist movies of all time. Also, can I say I wore um this strawberry shirt out yes. today and uh I had pink flip-flops on and someone goes, Hi Barbie! And I don't, I didn't even know where this person came from or if they were driving bar, but I went, hi, Barbie. I haven't even seen the movie. And I know that that's the response, but like, if all of it gets, if all I get out of it is women saying hi, Barbie to each other when we're wearing colorful clothes. Great. I'll take it. It's great. And I've already decided on my Halloween costume this year, uh, toward the end of the movie, one of the Kens is wearing a shirt that says I'm Knuff. And I've decided I'm going as a uh, self-assured Ken. I'm going I as I'm Ken. I yeah. want that to take off as a trend. That's incredible. I agree. And um, I, I mean, I, I this was sort of a bleak episode full of anger, but like, I do have to say that do, a few good things do still happen. Yes. Um, and uh, Greta Gerwig is a genius, and the yes. worldwide shortage in pink paint that the movie actually caused yes. in real life yes. 
was totally worth it. And um, it appears as if there's going to be a Mattel extended universe now. Oh, God. You know what? I don't care. I'm in. I'm in. I'm into it. Let's go. If you they know, manage to make all of these movies this good, I don't fucking care. <laughs> I mean, the original intent of Barbie was to show little girls that their dreams were possible. And she was intentionally never married to Ken. Ken is not her mm-hmm. husband. He's just a guy who hangs around, right? Mm-hmm. And she never had a kid. She had Kelly, who was her little sister. Like, all that Barbie... Listen, I'm not to get on my fucking feminist high horse about how much I love Barbie. Like, I was such a Barbie girl as a kid. Like, I loved this idea that you could be beautiful and glamorous and still be really smart and capable and do whatever you want. So, like, this is actually, like... I'm, I'm, am I getting a little choked up about uh-huh. how much Barbie means to me right now? But like, so we'll I do am, a follow-up episode. Yeah, yeah we'll see we'll the do Barbie one, movie, we'll and we'll do a, a full-on Barbie episode because, <laughs> like, it it is it is genius, and like, go please, please, please make it a smash hit, um, so we get more movies like this because I love it of, of branded content. Like, also, I want to note here: it is sharp. It yeah. goes hard against Mattel. And like Mattel apparently was okay with it, which I think is they're great. They're fucking Mattel. What are they? I mean, they're like, what are you gonna do? Cut into our profits by making a hit movie? Come on. It's true. It is kind of genius marketing. But speaking <laughs> of genius marketing, Metal Honey. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Get all your hot honey and uh, uh, local honey infused with global flavors. That's at metalhoney.com. You can use the promo code Perp Stew for free shipping over on orders over twenty five dollars. Because I know now. Yeah, you finally confirmed it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations, everyone. We now know uh, what the code does. And uh, I saw through a little Tweety Bird uh, that you just made a whole bunch or just sold a whole bunch of Burger Jam. Oh, I made, I sold a five. So if you go to the Indiana State Fair and you go see my good brohan, Justin Walker, over at Red Fraser Bison, um, if you don't know about Red Fraser, if you don't mind me talking about them for a little bit, uh, bison is uh, one of the native um, grazing animals in Indiana. Um, it's just a really cool thing. They're um, pasture-raised bison. So um, bison is naturally really low in fat. Um, it has a lot of hemoglobin in it, so it's a really healthy red meat. So you can go get a delicious uh, pasture-raised bison burger with some metal honey uh, burger jam on there. So that is going to be delicious. Give it a try. Goddamn. And yeah, and if you want... For the summer, I think Burger Jam is the flavor of the summer. Yum. I just have to say that. Yeah, Yum. probably oh. the flavor of every summer. <laughs> we uh, switched to smaller jars now. They're six ounces instead of twelve. Instead of these huge, tall, stupid twelve ounce jars. Now you can get like fresher. Like you can buy it more often and get it fresher and actually get your fucking knife in the bottom of the jar. So you're welcome. I think it was a really good design design decision because <laughs> it was hard to get to get down because you want. <laughs> Cause you want all of it. Yeah. Is that one of those things where you feel okay losing some? Like, no, you want every little last like molecule of it. Um, that's how good it is. So go to metal honey. It, it's amazing stuff. Thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate that, Matt. What about you? Mm-hmm. Where can people find you and your stuff? As always, you can find us at uh, on Twitter at Perp Stew, and I'm going to be making a threads account soon. I just haven't gotten on it yet. Um, <laughs> I, I will. Um, and on Facebook, please, we're going to be having an end of summer AMA. So send awesome. in your questions. We've gotten 15 questions so far. I need to go through them and figure out which ones we're going to do. But we need more because <laughs> usually only about a quarter of them 
um, ha- a significant portion of them are not are too dirty to air. <laughs> so the oh, other my. <laughs> And no, no, no. I say that in a good way. That oh. like people are always trying to walk the fine line. Should we do? <laughs> right sh- sh- should we? Uh, should we do um, the perps do after dark or something? Yeah, we can. Yeah, we can. We can do an, uh, an explicit episode. Great. Um, and uh, so send in those questions. We're also going to be doing ha- uh, doing a, a follow up episode with my friend Jess uh, about specific questions you have about um, the healthcare system and also healthcare law. So send those questions in. Uh, two, but that's going to do it for, oh, and always, sorry, before I forget, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review. Uh, everything you do, every engagement helps us with the algorithm, helps yes. new people find the show. Um, and that's going to do it for us this week. This has been The Perpetual Stew. I'm Matthew Goodman. And I'm Sarah Merle. And until next time, stay curious. Bye.